Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, feature writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Brandon Cronenberg, the writer and director of Infinity Pool, which was the best movie I saw at the Sundance Film Festival this year. It starts off as a kind of White Lotus-esque satire on the rich and beautiful on vacation, but ends up turning into something much darker and weirder and more interesting and, and highly original. And I won't get too much into the details of the plot because I do think, like most of Brandon's films, it is best experienced cold. So uh, if you haven't seen it, we don't have any spoilers here. If you have seen it, uh, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation that I had with Brandon about his approach to uh, working with the actors and his approach to the visual style and how he views making films that are open to interpretation. So enjoy our conversation. So Infinity Pool, you know, this was a movie I loved from the opening font. Like, I really like <laughs> the way you open the movie with the different title styles and the drum beat and then kind of moving into the, you know, these kind of hypnotic shots where the camera's tilting and turning upside down and all that. It's just such a great way to open a movie. Like, I immediately felt like, okay, I'm I'm really interested in what this guy has to show me. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what your thinking was in terms of opening the movie that way and what your sort of, for lack of a better word, philosophy is about how to open movies. Because I feel like your films always have really, really strong attention getting openings. Oh, thanks. I mean, obviously, it's important to hook people in some way uh, off the top. I, I think, especially these days, you know, people don't often have slow burn attention spans. And so uh, to hit somebody with something off the top is important that way. But I think it's also, to me, a good thing to declare yourself at the beginning in some way, you know, um, in Possessor, it was a more uh, conventionally punchy, violent scene that, that started the film and, and, and that sort of set up what it was about. In Infinity Pool, it's more uh, a formal game, but especially because the film is a little bit of a bait and switch. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a section of it at the beginning that uh, is familiar and then the intention is to, to start with a movie that, that's a bit like something that you've seen before and then, uh, and, and then twist it. Um, but to, in a sense, from a formal perspective, promise something and, and then return to that later on it was, was a structure that I, I thought would work best for it. And so in terms of that bait and switch you're talking about, where it does seem a little bit familiar and then turns into something different, I'm curious, you know, I, I read somewhere that basically the idea for this kind of came from you went to a resort kind of like what we see in the movie here. And I'm curious for you, how does that experience, so you have this real world experience of going to this resort. What's the process like of then sort of converting that into this act of imagination that becomes the screenplay? Well, the, the, the very start of the, the process was a short story I wrote that was actually just the first execution scene. So the, the doubling the idea of a, of a character watching his double being executed for a crime he committed and, and the kind of sense of identity displacement and, and thoughts he's having about punishment in that moment were the very, very beginning. The, re, the resort stuff was based on an experience I had, but I, I, I came back to it as I was expanding it into a feature and, and looking, for, uh, looking for a setting. So 
I guess, I guess, it, I guess it was that. I mean, um, the, the, there was something that was very conceptual when you try to uh, make a film out of something that uh, is a particular concept. You then need to find the characters. You then need to find the narrative that works in, in uh, something at least resembling conventional film terms um, and conventional film structure, which is exciting. I mean, uh, it's a little bit like pulling out a thread that then unravels into this into this longer thing. And in terms of finding that conventional film structure, I mean, are there other movies you look to as influences or reference points for something like this? Or are there literary references or is it all just purely an act of imagination? Uh, there are literary references in, in, in this case. I mean, it, it's, it relates in some ways to some of the later Ballard novels that I really, uh, that I really enjoy, even though those aren't sci-fi. They don't have that, uh, that element. Um, they're, they're thematically related. I like Borges a lot and it's not exactly, it wasn't exactly, I mean, obviously you can't write a short story like you can write a short story as a master of short stories, but that short single moment with uh, an almost magic realism element that, that talks uh, about the real world is something that he does really well and I, I grew up really loving his, uh, his, his fiction. In terms of uh, film references, I, I'm not sure. I, you know, I, wa I watched a lot of films when we were initially talking about this uh, with uh, Kareem Hussein in particular. My cinematographer is, is an absolute encyclopedia of of film knowledge, and usually we'll watch a, an absolute mass of stuff, and then I, I kind of clump that together into this weird loaf that I stick in the back of my head and nod like a rat while I'm working. And so I, I lose track. I lose track of those references specifically. Well, what kinds of conversations are you having with your cinematographer for a movie like this in terms of figuring out what the guiding principles are going to be for the movie visually? So what we, what we do is before we have any cast or locations or any sense of what the film is beyond the script, we'll sit down and we'll start with a kind of theoretical shot list that ends up being much longer and more complicated than what we actually have time for. It ends up changing substantially as we get the, the locations and the sets and the cast. But it's a good way to just go scene by scene and talk about the visual language of the film, uh, what kinds of equipment Kareem will need for the camera package. You know, we'll do camera tests, we'll test lenses, uh, focal depth, uh, you know, he, he was working with uh, something called the Cinefade system, which hilariously he, he had sort of invented on Possessor. We tried to do this. The Cinefade system is a, it, it syncs the iris of the camera with a variable ND filter. And so you can essentially change the, uh, change the stop without changing the focal depth, which can be used for an effect, which, which we do at one point where it, it goes from shallow to uh, deep focus to, to shallow again. Uh, all of that stuff happens in, I, I mean, all those conversations happen very early on. Uh, and then as the practical reality has come into focus, we, we continue to develop them. Well, t talking about the lenses, you know, it seemed to me like there are a lot of, a lot of scenes in this movie that do have very shallow depth of field. What was your thinking there? What were, what kind of effect were you looking to have on the audience or why did you make that decision? I essentially just like <laughs> like that look, uh, you know, that it's, uh, I, I wish I had a really great film theory answer for that. Um, in part with this kind of filmmaking, it does add 
a sense of subjectivity to it. And, and with this film, as with Possessor, uh, I, I guess all, all my films are usually really looking uh, from looking at the scene from one character's perspective. You're really following one character in a sort of subjective way. The hallucinatory elements uh, of the film work the way they do formally because it's the subjective experience. And, and so when we distort the image, it's sort of the eye of the, of the character. It could be that, but uh, I mean, the, the truth is I just like that aesthetic, but, but it maybe goes hand in hand with that subjectivity. Well, and this is maybe a similar question or maybe it'll have a similar answer, but you know, I, I felt like I really liked the way you also kind of use negative space or you create like a lot of headroom in certain scenes, like that first interrogation scene with uh, Skarsgård where the the investigator comes in and at, right after he's been arrested and there's kind of initially a lot of headroom. And, and again, there's shallowed up the field, a lot of negative space. And for me as a viewer, it did sort of put me in this guy's disoriented frame of mind. Um, but it, but again, is there is there a kind of intellectual reason behind those compositions, or is that more of an intuitive? That's what I like. I mean, I, I guess it's a little it's a little bit of both. It, it is what I like. I mean, I am not in any way a successful visual artist, but I, I draw a fair bit, and, and there's something uh, there's something hard to articulate about a, a certain kind of balance in a frame that just is satisfying to me. And it's not always the con the conventional balance. You know, I short frame my characters generally in close-ups and, and I do like headroom. Part of that is that it's just pleasing to my eye, but also there's a, there's a kind of tension to it. I mean, what you don't see in frame and what you do see in frame does create that tension. I like short framing because it's uncomfortable in a way you, you don't know what's immediately in front of the character. And, and there's, there's a kind of claustrophobia to that, that, that I think uh, works for, for these films. Um, the headroom, puts you off balance, but it does also, uh, it, it sort of crushes the characters with the environment uh, to a certain degree, which which I like. I think there's something to playing uh, with environments and how they mash against the characters rather than uh, sticking to conventional close-ups. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways in this movie that I feel like you, you kind of create the sense that Alexander Skarsgård's character is almost like a bug on a microscope or something. Like there's that great scene where he's first talking with that whole group of people who have been through the process of having their doubles made and executed and all that stuff. And you shoot this dialogue scene with him in that group kind of starts from outside a doorway and there's a sort of slow push. And I can't remember if it, if it's the camera moving or if it's a zoom, but you kind of very slowly push in and it creates this interesting tension again for me as a viewer, because there was part of me, it was kind of leaning forward, like cut in, like, you know, give me a close up or so. Like, like there was almost some part of there's a part of you that as a viewer that is conditioned to expect a certain kind of coverage and, and you don't give that, which I really like. I think it creates a really interesting tension in a scene like that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I, I, I definitely felt that that scene would have been too conventional if, if we'd done it the normal way. I mean, there, there's something too, yeah, I mean, it's shot that way for a reason. When you do the conventional scenes, I know it's giving faces, it's giving, uh, it's giving something. But yeah, when you withdraw that conventional information, it does make people uncomfortable in a way that 
that I like. And also in this case, the group has to operate as a, as a sort of singular entity in a way. And so to begin them as a sort of faceless mask of, uh, of characters who are slightly antagonizing James and, and to have James be the, the focal point uh, ended up just feeling better. Yeah. Now, I mean, at this point, this is your third movie. So I think people probably trust you and know what you do, but do I'm curious if actors ever, you know, are, are the actors on your sets ever like, you know, Hey, you know, where's the close up? Where's this? Show? Because you're not, you know, I mean, a lot of times actors are used to directors working a certain way that I'm, it seems like you do not work. Is there ever a situation where you kind of have to explain to them what you're doing? Do they look at you like you're doing it wrong? Or at this point, do they kind of understand what you, what you do? Uh, I, you know, that's a good question. I mean, the, some of the actors know each other, you know, uh, Alex is friends with Andrea Riseborough, so he could, uh, talk to her about her experiences on, on my films. Um, I certainly, as you make more movies and actors can see your movies, if they want to work with you, presumably they like what you do. And so there's some additional trust there. Um, but I've, you know, I very often, do tell the actors what I'm doing in that sense. I mean, we, we're still working uh, as a team on a pretty independent film schedule. You know, it's, it's pretty tight. It's pretty hectic. A lot of those scenes were shooting with um, multiple cameras. We had two cameras running pretty much uh, all the time, uh, sometimes three, occasionally four, just because it was so tight getting everything in. So usually I will tell the actors that camera over there, See, you know, it, it, because of the shallowness and, and the lens length, sometimes the cameras are sort of out of the mix, but it's someone's close up. And so I want them to know this is your close up. We're really, we're really punched in on you here because uh, it's, it's just helpful for actors to know when they're, uh, how to weight their performance, I guess. Well, that idea that you're shooting sometimes with three or four cameras is interesting to me. I mean, what are the challenges of you getting the most out of that many cameras, um, you know, when you're, trying to, like you say, make your days on this sort of independent schedule? It is partly camera placement uh, can be a bit tricky, but not, I mean, I started doing that on Possessor again because of schedule, but I've come to like it. I think given the opportunity, I would always roll a second camera, uh, not necessarily cross shooting. That's, you know, uh, very occasionally we need to sort of cross shoot a, a conversation or something because uh, we just have time limits. I, I don't love doing that because I'd, I'd rather, you know, shoot a, a wide and a close of, a, of one actor and just concentrate on, on that performance. I try to not cross shoot when possible. Um, placement can be an issue, but at the same time, you can always have a sort of master shot that's the main thing you're going for and then get an off to the side sort of detail uh, shot like I really uh, have been fortunate to work with some really fantastic camera operators and so letting them sort of roam with one camera and, and, and get details and, and get those sort of punch-ins while we're covering a, a more conventional close-up from another angle that can be uh, that can be really useful. Uh, the other challenge is editing though because paradoxically although we didn't have a lot of time to shoot the film because we were rolling at least two cameras for most scenes we ended up with this absolute mountain of footage and and a lot of it was very fluid you know uh, covering one scene with a steady cam that really moves throughout the room and and uh, tags the different actors for different lines and, and drifts through and then another longer lens uh, camera getting these these more impressionistic details so 
it wasn't like we could just discard uh, lots of this footage and still have the scenes work. It was really <laughs> editing it at some points was almost like a documentary because we we're going through uh, editing a documentary because we we're going through such an incredible mass of footage and finding these uh, th these little moments. That's harder than uh, a one camera, very uh, rigid, uh, it's kind of storyboarded version of editing. Well, and I would think the editing on a movie like this would be challenging also because it's such a delicate balance of how far you let the audience get ahead or behind of what's going on. I mean, something else I find interesting about your movies is, you know, they're almost always kind of intentionally disorienting at first. And then there's a moment where things kind of click and you figure out what's going on. And I feel like that's something I could see that in all of your films being a very tricky, tricky thing where you are, you know, you and your editor, you very familiar with this footage and you're very familiar with this story. And I'm curious how you keep your objectivity in the editing room to know that you're kind of hitting those points the way you want to for the audience. You know what I mean? It's honestly not just what happens in the editing room. You know, you, you do your best, you cut something together, you, you think you've got it, and then you start to show people and you, you just, you get friends and colleagues and you, you do a series of sort of small screenings, ideally for people who haven't even read the script, who don't even know, uh, and who are used to rough film work, films in progress, so they're not put off by the, the lack of final music or final color or so on. You get a lot of really interesting feedback when you do that. There's stuff that you thought was working that absolutely is not working and everybody has the same note and something that seemed completely obvious to you is just somehow not being communicated. Uh, other scenes that you think are terrible, you find are suddenly getting laughs or people, you know, you, you think that something rough that, that wasn't really landing uh, is is going to go, but then it just happens to be working or there's like an interesting way that it's coming through that wasn't exactly what you had planned, but it but becomes, uh, becomes worthwhile. So uh, yeah, you, it, familiarity is your enemy when you're editing because you do lose all sense of objectivity and some directors don't uh, spend so much time in the editing room. They, they dip in and out. I think to counteract that, but I, I can't do that. I'm there the whole time in, in what might be a very obnoxious way, <laughs> cut by cut, sort of frame by frame with my editor um, working as a team. So you have to, if you, if you do it that way, step outside your head by showing it to people. And even just watching it in a room full of people uh, puts it, casts it in an entirely different light. Well, it's interesting to me, the idea of showing it to audiences and getting their reactions and everything, because your movies you know, it's not like showing people, uh, you know, Top Gun Maverick or something where I think there's kind of one reaction that is the reaction you want from everybody. I mean, your films leave themselves open to a certain amount of interpretation and leave themselves open to audiences responding in, in different ways. And do you as a filmmaker have a, have a kind of clear, uh, I guess, effect you want the movie to have on on the audience or is there is there is there a goal in mind in that sense or is it more just something where it's for you about the process and then throwing it out there and letting the chips fall where they may uh it's a little of both i mean to me i i really enjoy films that allow room for interpretation and exploration i mean to, to me that's a very rich process i think there's always some of that in 
in film because uh, there's so much subjectivity to watching a movie. You know, I, I feel like the last creative act done when you're making a film is done by the audience because they're, they're processing the film, interpreting it, injecting it with their own perspective to some degree. Uh, but I like films that leave a fair amount of room uh, for that. So, so usually what I do when I'm working is I'll have my own interpretation of the film. It's not open-ended to me. I really do know beat by beat what's happening. I really do know the reality of, of the story uh, as I consider it to, to be, uh, then there is a, a process of feeling out to, to what degree it's meant to be open ended. I mean, the, the ending of this film, there, there's some ambiguity there that was, it's just written into the script. It's, it's always, uh, it was intended to work like that, even though, again, I have my own sense of, of what, you know, the, the quote unquote real ending is in my eyes, but, it is a it is a difficult balance because on on the one hand you even if even if you want the audience to be free to interpret your films you there's certain things that you don't want to really be a question you know there's there's certain basic narrative beats that you want uh, communicated and you, you you want the good type of confusion or you know the 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 confusion that makes an audience want to explore you don't want the general narrative confusion because some fundamental plot point just didn't land. And so part of that comes from showing people getting those reactions um, uh, and deciding through that process when to leave it open and when we need to sort of solve something in a, in a concrete way. And, and how does that open-ended approach inform the way you talk with your actors? I mean, for example, with Alexander Skarsgård, are you guys having very specific conversations about what the ending means or what his character is going through, or is it something, or do you not want to, uh, you know, impose yourself on whatever his interpretation might be? We do. We do speak specifically when what the actors often want to know specifically uh, the intention. And so before shooting, I will have, sometimes fairly detailed talks with the actors about what I'm intending. They'll give me feedback. Sometimes I'll even tweak the script a little bit based on conversations with, with the actors. And um, because when you have a good actor, you know, they, they are focused entirely on this one character, you know, you, as the director, you're, you're focusing on everything. Sometimes a brilliant talent who's just engaged with this one tiny part of your puzzle has a fantastic thought about just that character and, and they're injecting these characters with uh, such detailed backstories and, and, and exploring them for themselves and, and sometimes great stuff comes out of that and, and through those conversations it's worth uh, folding into the, the, the film. Um, in terms of the shoot, I mean so much of the work is done first of all just in casting if you, if you cast great actors, that's a lot of, <laughs> like a lot of your work done as a, as a director in a way. Um, you know, people talk about how, uh, about getting a performance out of an actor. And I get questions sometimes uh, about that. How did you get this incredible performance out of Mia? It's like, well, you, you, <laughs> I just cast her, you know, like, <laughs> like the, there's guidance. We talk a lot beforehand as she's developing the character for herself. Obviously, when I'm shooting, I'm editing the film in my head as, as well as I can to make sure that we have what we need and I'm offering some guidance. But usually in a scene-by-scene -scene way, I want to uh, make space for those actors to do 
the amazing stuff that I cast them to do and, and to explore and to, uh, uh, to find the characters that way. So I'm not sitting off screen, hitting them with a stick or something or, or you know, trying to get them to, uh, to act in a certain way. There is, I do leave a fair bit of room for exploration. Then in the edit, I'm, I'm particular about, about how I cut them. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about was your approach to the sound in the movie. Cause I felt like the, you know, it's an interesting movie where the sound design and the score almost at times, I wasn't even sure if I was hearing sound design or music, you know, they, they're, they're very well integrated and they have a lot to do with the kind of emotional and psychological impact the movie has. And so I guess just talk a little bit about how you approach sound design and what kinds of conversations you have with, the sound mixers and your composer. Right. So the, the composer is Tim Hecker. And so he has uh, obviously uh, an incredible uh, career as a musician. You know, he's, he's, he's getting more and more into composing for film, but that's not his primary. That's not what he's known for primarily. He already tonally was perfect for the film. I mean, what, what he does is, is really what I wanted. And, uh, that part was easy. I mean, we had a lot of conversations about specific scenes and intention and so on, but getting that, that basis, uh, for the, the, the approach to score was easy because it was already so much in his world. We were, we were kind of coming from kind of the same place. Um, sound from a, from a mixing perspective, that team had worked with him on the North water already. And so he, he has a, he's totally very specific and works a, in a certain way. They already had this experience with him on a, on a limited series. So that was great because um, they knew what to expect from him before the, the music was in, although he had done, he, he wrote these sort of open-ended bits of score based on his feelings about the film and some early footage. So we were able to, in the temp score, insert stuff that was uh, essentially rough draft score for uh, for our film specifically. Uh, but they knew what that process would be like and they were able to, to complement his work and also have a sense of when sound design would step on score. You know, sometimes they would just offer a ton of stuff knowing that it would maybe interfere too much with the score and... and uh, you know, the, the sound team usually offers too much knowing that you'll pull back. It's always better than not having enough in there. And, and so in the mix, we could really uh, tweak uh, how much to lean on on design over score. Uh, it might be too soon to ask this, but I'm just curious. Do you know what's next for you? I don't know necessarily. I'm, a, I'm working on a space horror film called Dragon, which which I hope will happen. Uh, there's a, a book called Super Can that I'm working to adapt into a limited series. Uh, neither of those are sure things yet, so I, 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 can't, I, I, I can't tell you for sure, but hopefully one of them or both of them will go. Cool. Well, I really loved Infinity Pool, and uh, I've had a great time talking with you about it, so thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, great to, great to chat. Mm-hmm.